A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. After months of searching, Alan Quatermain and his band of English explorers had finally found it. They had crossed a vast desert survived the army of Kukuwanaland, scaled the twin mountains known as Sheba's Breasts, all for this, to find King Solomon's hidden mines. Deep in the mountains, hidden inside a sealed chamber, they found a massive hoard of diamonds, gold, and ivory. They would be wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. They immediately started celebrating counting their newfound riches. Suddenly, a loud boom sounded from the entrance. The giant thousand-ton stone door of the mines crashed shut. The party was plunged into darkness, as black as the bottom of the ocean. They couldn't see the hands in front of their faces, much less each other. They were trapped in the mountain with their plunder. The mines they had sought for so long had become their tomb. So goes the climax of King Solomon's Mines, an adventure written by English novelist H. Ryder Haggard in 1885. The story of Alan Quatermain and his friends was an instant hit and generated a new wave of genuine interest in discovering long-lost archaeological treasures. Within 50 years of its publication, sites like Machu Picchu, King Tut's tomb, and Knossos Crete were all uncovered by explorers. Despite this, King Solomon's real-life mines remain lost. Do King Solomon's mines exist only in literature? Or could they still be out there somewhere beneath the earth, just waiting for someone to discover them? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on King Solomon's Mines. From 970 to 931 BCE, King Solomon transformed war-torn Israel into a prosperous kingdom with a capital city covered in gold. For thousands of years, explorers have searched for the source of King Solomon's wealth, but no one has ever found it. Last week, we dove into the biblical story of King Solomon and traced his connections to gold-rich areas in the ancient world. This week, we'll set out from Jerusalem to explore potential locations of King Solomon's missing mines. We'll do our best to locate the final resting place of one of the greatest treasures of the ancient world. According to the Bible, when 15-year-old King Solomon first inherited the throne of Israel in 970 BCE, the kingdom was at a turning point. His father, David, was a warrior king. While he had defended the small principality's borders, he hadn't done much to increase its power. Solomon, known even from a young age for his wisdom, saw a new path to expanding Israel's prosperity. Instead of fighting battles during his 40-year reign, Solomon struck lucrative trade deals with surrounding nations. He expanded the capital city of Jerusalem building a new palace, government buildings, and his crowning achievement, a legendary temple to Yahweh, the Hebrew God. And he covered it all in gleaming gold, a glittering testament to Israel's financial might. The key to Solomon's power and legacy was his gold. But no record exists as to where that precious metal may have come from. Perhaps this is due to Solomon's wisdom. Keeping his mind secret would secure Jerusalem's power. Or maybe the location of the reserves was known at some point, but lost to time. Solomon's golden city was erased as well. The Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar II, destroyed Jerusalem in 587 BCE, stealing the gold and demolishing Solomon's palace and temple. Any evidence of the treasure's origin was torn down with the city's walls. In the millennia since, only conjecture remains as to the location of King Solomon's lost mines. According to the Hebrew Bible, the gold supposedly came from a far-off city called Ophir, but no one has been able to determine where Ophir is located in the modern world. Over the years, explorers have claimed dozens of locations as the source of King Solomon's gold. In today's episode, we're going to consider three possibilities. Some believe Solomon's gold may have come from Africa. In the 1800s, explorers discovered a forgotten city in southern Africa. It was in an area with abundant gold stores. Perhaps it was the storied Ophir. They thought the ruins, called the Great Zimbabwe, could be hiding fabulous riches. 
However, Ethiopians in Eastern Africa have long claimed a special relationship to the biblical stories of King Solomon through their monarchy. Many believe the Ethiopian kings were direct descendants of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. In 1999, British author and journalist Tahir Shah mounted his own expedition across Ethiopia in search of the lost mines. He was inspired by his Indian Afghan father and grandfather, who had spent years of their lives scouring the world in search of the lost treasure. Finally, recent discoveries in the Timna Valley in Israel have excited archaeologists and historians alike. The artifacts found there point to copper mining activities. Some researchers believe that instead of gold, Solomon was enriching his kingdom through the mining and processing of copper ore. First, let's consider the Great Zimbabwe. Portuguese explorers colonized Southeast Africa as early as 1498. When they first heard rumors of a great city hidden in the hills of modern-day Zimbabwe, they dismissed them out of hand. Blinded by their disdain for African civilizations, the explorers were certain that the kingdom of Zimbabwe wasn't hiding a wonder of the world. Explorer Jean de Barros recorded these rumors. He stated that the locals believed that this mythical city was the work of the devil. It wasn't until the 1870s, when the city had fallen into ruins, that it was rediscovered by European archaeologists. The site, now called the Great Zimbabwe, is a large fortress built near the Limpoapoa and Zambezi River in the southeastern part of the country. It features long stone walls, living spaces, and a stone tower reaching over 30 feet high. From the beginning, the Great Zimbabwe was linked to King Solomon. In 1871, German explorer Karl Mauck, struck by the ruin's size and complexity, became convinced that this was the site of the biblical city of Ophir, the source of King Solomon's gold. As described in the Bible, Ophir lay somewhere across the sea from ancient Israel. In the 900s BCE, King Solomon and his ally, King Hiram of Tyre, led expeditions there to trade for luxury goods. Their boats set out from a port on the Red Sea and returned to Israel piled high with spices, ivory, precious gems, and mountains of gold. Ophir was supposedly the source of Solomon's gold and home to the mines where it was quarried. It may have also been part of the kingdom of Sheba, whose wealthy queen had a relationship with Solomon. Karl Mauck thought that the Great Zimbabwe matched these biblical descriptions. The great stone city on a hill was, without a doubt, a center for trade. It sat on the shortest route between the goldfields and the Indian Ocean. The denizens of the fortress thus likely controlled gold mining throughout Zimbabwe. Many archaeologists believe that one structure in this city, called the Great Enclosure, is the remains of a palace. The outer wall of the building, which is still standing, stretches over 800 feet. The Queen of Sheba could have lived here, easily commanding the entire region, mining gold and sending ships sailing out to the Indian Ocean to trade with Israel. 
The city that the Portuguese had so easily dismissed in the 1500s was actually an ancient treasure. Malk believed he'd found the solution to an ancient mystery hiding in plain sight. Here, in the highlands of Zimbabwe, were King Solomon's mines. But Malk, for all his enthusiasm, overlooked a very important detail. The Great Zimbabwe was built over 2,000 years after King Solomon mined his gold. Archaeologists have determined that the magnificent houses, walls, and towers of the Great Zimbabwe were erected over the course of 400 years, beginning in the 1000s CE. In fact, judging by carbon-dated artifacts found in the city, Shona rulers of the Kingdom of Zimbabwe were still living in the citadel as late as the 1500s. Perhaps if the first Portuguese colonists had ventured to the city, rather than just reporting rumors, they would have discovered that there were still people living there. Instead, it took until the 1870s for the archaeological community to discover the history of the Great Zimbabwe. And even then, researchers were unwilling to believe a sub-Saharan African civilization could build such impressive architecture. Instead, they ascribed the site to Shebans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, and even Arabs. But instead of the Queen of Sheba, the Great Zimbabwe was the medieval seat of power for the Shona, an Iron Age ethnic group that dominated the area. Therefore, the Great Zimbabwe was not the lost city of Ophir. While it was rich in gold, none of it ever belonged to King Solomon. This makes sense. After all, the Great Zimbabwe is located near the southern tip of Africa, well over 5,000 miles from Jerusalem. This would be an incredibly long journey for the Israelites to make. Instead, King Solomon likely would have looked closer to home to find his wealth. Many believe that it was in Ethiopia, not far off Zimbabwe, that Solomon struck gold. Next, we'll journey to Ethiopia to discover the true source of King Solomon's gold. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, gift mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. 
The location of King Solomon's gold mines, the source of ancient Israel's power, has been a captivating mystery for thousands of years. Explorers have claimed that the Great Zimbabwe was actually the site of the mines, falsely believing the medieval structures there could be dated back to the 10th century BCE. But there is a land much closer to Israel that already has ties to King Solomon. Even today, many Ethiopians believe that the king found his precious gold within their borders. The Old Testament described the meeting of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. The queen ruled over a prosperous country somewhere near the Red Sea, and her intelligence and beauty were unmatched. The queen presented Solomon with a series of riddles to test his wisdom. When he answered correctly, she rewarded him with rare timber, exotic animals, incense, gems, and gold. According to the Kebra Nagast, one of the oldest and most sacred of Ethiopian Christian scriptures, Solomon and the queen did not only share knowledge and goods with each other, they were lovers as well. Allegedly, the queen had a son by Solomon named Menelik. Menelik was the first of the Solomonic dynasty, and his descendants supposedly ruled Ethiopia all the way until 1974. The royal line ended when Haile Selassie, the last king of Ethiopia, was killed by the usurping communist government. With Ethiopia's long and storied connection to King Solomon, many have theorized that his mines must be located within the gold-rich country. While the stories of Solomon and Menelik are intertwined with Ethiopian religion and culture, most of the evidence tying these threads together is anecdotal rather than concrete. However, they're still compelling enough to bring travelers into the country in search of Solomon's gold. In 1999, travel journalist and author Tahir Shah journeyed across Ethiopia to find Solomon's reserves. His father and grandfather had made similar sojourns, crossing the Middle East to find the wise king's riches. They had come up empty-handed. Inspired by his family history and certain the mines must be in Ethiopia, Shah flew to Addis Ababa with a Bible, a number of travelogues written by 19th century explorers, and a heart full of hope. Tahir had no issue finding a likely site for King Solomon's gold mines. In fact, he found too many. As he traveled, it seemed like every region had a different cave or shaft that locals believed was King Solomon's mine. His real challenge would be to figure out which one was the real one. As Tahir and his assistant Samson set out from Addis Ababa, their first stop was Deir Dawa. Deir Dawa, a city in the eastern part of Ethiopia, is a place marked by two different cultures. The colonial quarter features French architecture and wide streets. Across the river is the old town of Megala, which is dominated by Islamic architecture. Tahir and Samson stepped off the train and arrived in the middle of a bustling market. Vendors selling spices and cloth yelled to passers-by, hawking their wares. Women examined battered steel cooking pots and broken telephones. Piles of car parts rusted next to bins of fresh vegetables. 
A fruit seller told Tahir and Samson about a nearby cave filled with Solomon's treasure. A group of boys volunteered to take the adventurers to the cavern, which they said was not far outside the city. When Tahir and Samson arrived, their spirits dropped. Instead of a hidden mine shaft leading to a subterranean den full of gold, they found a shallow grotto in the cliff face. Some locals had taken to using the front part of it as a public toilet, and so the floor was covered in inches of human waste. Undeterred, Tahir plowed forward, figuring that since they came all this way, they might as well be thorough. Samson followed reluctantly behind. Wading through raw sewage, it wasn't long before they reached the back of the alcove. They lit an old rubber boot on fire to use as a makeshift torch, but they were instantly set upon by the denizens of the cave, dozens of squawking, angry bats. They found a small room at the back of the cave and were hopeful for a moment, but the local children told Tahir and Samson that it belonged to a hermit who had long since died. When the man passed away, people from Dirdawa bricked up the door turning his home into a tomb. Rather than gold, the only thing Tahir and Samson discovered was a new and particularly horrible stink. The Deer Dawa Cave could be crossed off their list. Undeterred, Tahir and Samson continued by bus to their next stop, the hyena-infested city of Harar. Harar, just south of Deer Dawa, has been known for its spotted hyenas for over 500 years. Even more notable are the hyena men, citizens who have protected the city for generations by feeding the wild hyenas every night. Tahir heard stories that the hyenas were associated with Solomon's gold. Some locals said the creatures wore gold earrings. To find out more, Tahir and Samson set out to speak with one of the few remaining hyena men of Harar, a man named Yusuf. When they found Yusuf, he was slaughtering a cow in the courtyard outside his home. He explained that he killed an animal every night to feed to the hyenas so as to keep them from attacking the people who lived in the city. Even with his nightly feedings, Young, unsupervised children were still occasionally carried off in the dark by the wild pack. As he prepared the feast, Yusuf told Tahir and Samson that the hyenas were agents of Solomon. Unlike normal hyenas, the ones that lived at Harar were actually jinn, a type of Islamic spirit. They were charged by the wise king to protect his treasure from any who sought it. The hyena's lair, he told them, was the site of King Solomon's ancient treasure. Anyone who sought it would be torn limb from limb. As the sun set over Harar, the famous hyenas started to appear at the edges of the city. They approached Yusuf's courtyard, and he demonstrated to Tahir and Samson why he was called a hyena man. As the animals ventured closer, communicating with their distinctive laughing barks, Yusuf skewered a piece of meat on a long, sharp stick. Holding the stick in his teeth, 
he beckoned the hyenas forward like old friends. This was one legend Tahir didn't feel the need to investigate further. He wrote in his book, In Search of King Solomon's Mines, that after seeing the aggression of Yusuf's so-called tame hyenas, he was content to stay very, very far away from their lair. Forced to move on from their brief stop at Harar, Tahir and Samson pushed on to investigate more sites. They stopped at Lega Dembai, a government-run gold mine in the south of the country. Once there, they joined a salt caravan traveling through the Danakil Desert. The salt merchants told them a legend of how all of Danakil was once a vast gold field, and the people of Afar were rich beyond measure. But God became upset with the Donakil people's greed and turned all the gold to salt and the fields into a blistering desert. The Donakil that still lived there believed that one day, if they atone enough, God will turn the salt back to gold and they will be rich once more. Tahir and Samson heard many stories like this, but they were no closer to finding King Solomon's mines. Desperate for a lead, Tahir turned back to the written materials he used to plan his trip, including a 1936 memoir by explorer Frank Hayter entitled Gold of Ethiopia. In his book, Hayter described a cavern in the mountains that had been hidden for many years. Inside, Hayter found a plethora of gold. But before he could recover the treasure, the cave flooded. When Hader returned, the entrance shaft had been sealed. Whether by a cave-in or by some other power, he couldn't tell. Tahir was intrigued by Hader's account and convinced Samson to set out with him to the remote mountain. Located at the far western edge of Ethiopia, not far from the Sudan border, the Twin Peaked Mountain was steeped in superstition. According to local lore, The mountain was the home of the devil, and anyone who went near it was plagued by misfortune. The farmers who grew crops at the base of the mountain had to export their harvest to a different region of Ethiopia, as locals refused to eat from the land around this area. Nevertheless, after a fair amount of convincing and a small amount of bribery, Tahir and Samson were able to put together an expedition. They recruited a mule driver, his two sons, and four local men to scale the slope. Tahir deduced from Hader's account that the Cave of Riches must be near the base of the easternmost peak. But while they wouldn't have to climb the whole height of the mountain, their journey would be far from easy. As soon as the land began to slope upward, the jungle grew thick and almost impassable. While the unbroken canopy of trees shielded them from the heavy rain, it did nothing to prevent the ground under their feet from being turned into deep mud. After they finally broke through the forest, Tahir was hopeful. Here, at the beginnings of the eastern slope, King Solomon's mines were waiting. He ordered the men to fan out and search. At first, their excitement was palpable, but as the hours went on, Morale began to drop lower and lower. There was no cave entrance in sight. Tahir was almost ready to put an end to the search when one of the men called out. 
Tedessa, the mule driver, had found a cave. Immediately, the expedition jumped into a flurry of activity. They unpacked the mules, pulling out lanterns, nylon ropes, and even a metal detector. Finding that the batteries in their lanterns had run out, Tahir and Samson made makeshift torches by wrapping cloth around bamboo staves and setting them alight. They were at the beginning of the end. Just beyond the entrance to this cavern were King Solomon's mines. Next, we'll follow Tahir Shaw into the mineshaft. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Now, back to the story. Journalist Tahir Shah set out in 1999 to investigate every legend he could find about the true location of King Solomon's mines in Ethiopia. Now, deep in the heart of the Twin Mountains, rising above an African plain, Tahir knew he would find the treasure his family sought for three generations. Tahir and his assistant, Samson, found the entrance to a cave hidden at the base of the easternmost peak of the mountain. This was what they had been seeking for months, the entrance to King Solomon's mines. Armed with torches and a metal detector, Tahir and his assistant Samson surged forward in the cave. Overhead, bats swooped back and forth, disturbed by the smoke. Already, Tahir and Samson were thinking of how they would spend their gold. With this discovery, the two of them would become heroes to the archaeological world. But just as suddenly as their triumphant sojourn into the cave had begun, it abruptly ended. Twenty feet in, their way was blocked by a stone wall cutting off any further exploration. Tahir and Samson searched desperately for a hole or a door or any sort of crevice they could fit themselves through, but to no avail. Their hopes had been dashed. The shallow, blocked cave spelled the end for Tahir's expedition. The team searched across the eastern mountain base but couldn't find another possible mine shaft. Soon enough, the locals, soaked through by the torrential rain and already afraid of meeting the devil, demanded they turn back. Seven months later, in 2000, Tahir and Samson would try again to find King Solomon's gold reserves in the mountain. This expedition fared no better. Beset by horrible thunderstorms, the team members spent weeks but made no progress in the mud. Tahir was attacked by soldier ants, and the skin on his feet began to rot away due to the miserable wet conditions. For his part, Samson was in horrible pain, dealing with intestinal worms. During this terrible second trip, 
Samson told Tahir, The mountain will kill you. Take my advice. Go back to Europe and stop thinking about Solomon's gold. As their kerosene and fresh water ran out, Tahir Shah was forced to call the expedition off. Since his last attempt in 2000, no one has ever mounted another expedition to find King Solomon's mines at the mountain. But perhaps the real reason why Tahir Shah wasn't able to find the mines at the mountain was because they weren't located in Ethiopia at all. According to the Bible, ancient Israel's most significant trading partner was Ophir, a geographically mysterious city described as a source of gold. But in over three millennia of searching, archaeologists and historians still don't have a definitive answer as to where Ophir was located. If you ask some experts, this is because Ophir and Solomon's gold never existed. In 1938, American archaeologist Nelson Glick began excavations on a site in the south of Israel he believed to be King Solomon's long-lost mines. The difference between this and other excavations was that Glick believed the spot processed copper rather than gold. He thought this was the true source of Solomon's wealth. Unfortunately, the site was quickly proven to be a settlement, not a smelting mine. Glick's peers discounted his theories of ancient Israelite copper reserves. Perhaps as a reaction to Glick's theory, Archaeologists who came after him began to argue that there was no proof supporting any of the biblical stories of King Solomon. Instead, they thought it was much more likely that Solomon and his father, King David, were clan chieftains rather than transcontinental rulers. In their eyes, Solomon's kingdom wasn't powerful enough to have any sort of large-scale prospecting operation. They also doubted that Solomon had the ability to orchestrate long-distance foreign trade. The descriptions of his fabulous temple and the golden buildings of Jerusalem in the Bible were merely stories and did not actually reflect Solomon's real-life rule. It is very difficult to find archaeological proof supporting many historical descriptions of cities, kings, and events in the Bible. Most of the history of ancient Israel is recorded in the two books of Kings in the Hebrew Bible. These books were originally written as early as the 600s BCE, and the version that appears in the Old Testament today is from the mid-500s BCE. This means that even the earliest version of Kings was written 300 years after the death of King Solomon. Therefore, it's entirely possible details of his rule were changed to cast him as a more powerful leader. However, to say the entire history of Solomon's rule has been fabricated and enhanced is also inaccurate. And more recent archaeological findings greatly bolster not only the biblical record, but even some of Glick's theories. In 2013, Israeli archaeologist Erez ben Yosef began excavating a site called Slaves Hill in Timna Valley, 200 miles to the south of Jerusalem. The site, initially discovered back in 1934, was thought to be an ancient Egyptian outpost 
dating back to the 1200s or 1100s BCE. During this period, Egypt gained control of many of the coastal areas of the Levant, reaching as far north as modern-day Syria. In fact, the entire area is dotted with Egyptian artifacts and carvings from this time. Under the ancient Egyptians, Slaves Hill was a mining settlement. The people who lived there mined and smelted copper ore, refining it for trading and metalwork. Unlike Glick's excavation site, Slaves Hill was undoubtedly a prospecting and metal processing operation. The ancient copper slag, or byproduct, is proof of that. The archaeologists working there believed that the site was an Egyptian outpost, exporting copper back to Egypt. Never in their wildest dreams did they believe Slaves Hill had anything to do with King Solomon. However, Ben Yosef's team uncovered animal dung near one of their excavation sites. They sent it off to the lab, fully expecting it to be no more than a few decades old. Instead, Ben Yosef was shocked to find the livestock came from the 10th century BCE, the period when King David and King Solomon ruled Israel. Textiles and other artifacts found atop Slaves Hill confirmed the discovery. The site was most active not during the 1200s BCE, but during King Solomon's reign. Was Glick right? Could this copper mine be the source of Solomon's power after all? Just because the site is contemporary with Solomon's rule doesn't mean it belonged to his kingdom. There were many civilizations battling for dominance of this area that could have owned this mine. In King David's time, one of Israel's neighbors and greatest enemies was the Kingdom of Edom. The Edomites controlled much of the southern part of modern-day Israel and fought often with the Israelites. However, in the Bible, King David conquered the Edomites after a massive battle and took over their land. Edom became a vassal of Israel, ruled over by the Israeli king and required to pay tribute to Jerusalem. Ben Yosef's discovery of a fortified wall surrounding the slave's hill suggests that whoever lived there was fending off attacks. If the Edomites controlled the mine, it could have been a target of the Israelites during King David's reign. If the copper processing was done by the Edomites at Slaves Hill, it's likely that they would have eventually come under the control of the Israelites. Perhaps Jerusalem's wealth and prosperity under Solomon weren't due to a secret gold mine, but due to collected contributions from conquered peoples. Ben Yosef theorized that taxes or tribute demanded from the Edomites' vast copper processing apparatus at Slaves Hill could have easily filled Jerusalem's coffers. Copper was incredibly valuable in the 10th century BCE, as it was used to make bronze. Bronze, a durable alloy, was essential for weaponry, artwork, building materials, and household goods. This is basically what Glick theorized in the 1930s. He thought that Solomon amassed his wealth not from gold, but from mining and trading copper. Glick hadn't discovered a copper mine, as we said. It was simply a settlement. But while Glick made mistakes, could his theory have still been correct? It's unclear. 
The Bible explicitly states that Solomon built a city of white stone capped in gold. According to the Old Testament, Solomon used tons of precious metal in the construction of his legendary temple. Why would biblical authors write that Solomon used gold if he'd actually used copper? It's possible that this was an exaggeration to make Solomon look more powerful and prosperous, but that would only confirm what we've already discovered. Instead, we have to consider the possibility that the gold mines are still out there, waiting to be discovered. The mystery of Solomon's gold has captivated imaginations for centuries. Books and poems have been written about the wise king's wealth, telling stories of piles of coins and gilded buildings. Painters have created wondrous depictions of Solomon's glittering city, with sparkling throne rooms and men and women in sumptuous robes. The same creative spirit that attracts artists to the Solomon story inspires explorers to find the real-life evidence behind it. The search for King Solomon's mines has spanned millennia. People have risked life and limb to mount expeditions across the world, only to be met with failure again and again. It's hard to say whether the mines truly exist or not, but whether they're hidden under a shifting desert or merely the product of legend, stories of Solomon's lost treasures will continue to inspire curiosity for generations. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the search for the mines, amongst the many sources we used, we found In Search for King Solomon's Mines by Tahir Shah and the National Geographic article In Search of the Real Queen of Sheba by Stanley Stewart extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. Mm-hmm.